Welcome to another show of Coffee with Kareem. Today's episode, you're going to get to hear an amazing conversation I had with a professor from Zaytuna College. We discuss issues of race and Islam, uh, identity confusion, and other topics pertaining to self-definition. I do acknowledge that some ideas or questions may have not been addressed uh, thoroughly or from every angle. Our intention was simply to bring to light um, these topics and begin the conversation. If you have any uh, concerns or inquiries, please visit coffeewithkareem.com and go to the more section. We always love to hear your feedback and suggestions. Here with me today is an esteemed guest, Dr. Abdullah bin Hamid Adi. He is the founder of Lampost Productions and the Lampost Education Initiative. And he is also the head of Zaytuna College's Islamic Law Program, and he is a professor there. Please visit lampostproductions.com for more information. One specific topic that you specialize in is Islam and race, or race and Islam. And that's what I wanted to pick your brain on uh, today, inshallah. Um, so why don't you just start us by first telling us, you know, what is racism? And maybe what's the difference between that and being prejudiced or ethnocentric? Or is there a lot of crossover with some of these terms? Because maybe some people are confused as to what exactly is the difference. It's nice to be with you today. Yeah, in order to understand racism, you do have to speak about the concept of race to even start with. Uh, and the uh, race itself is an anthropological term uh, which um, is utilized to specify uh, large uh, swaths of people or to try to classify large groups of people under um, sub, uh, super categories based upon certain shared or apparently shared uh, characteristics. A race can be, um, mm-hmm. a, a, again, a term which is attempting to classify people based upon the particular part of the world they live in, uh, but also it can be utilized to uh, to classify people on the basis of the color of their skin, or it can be on the basis of shared uh, cultural artifacts such as language um, uh, and history. Uh, so there are many different ways to see race, even though in the um, time we live in, I would say that most people they, when they think of race, they think of race as biological in nature, or as a scientific term, even though it's not a scientific term. It's a, um, an, a, an anthropological term uh, more than anything else, and it has been in flux throughout history. Uh, so, so but once you have the concept of race, then um, racism becomes uh, a bit more easy to understand. So, for instance, uh, there are two fundamental definitions of race or two different ways that people generally look upon race, or racism, I'll put it like that. So uh, in one sense, racism is what we refer to as just simply prejudice directed against a certain group or race of people or species or subspecies of people simply on the basis of racial difference. So if that racial difference is uh, cultural, then it'll it'll translate into a certain type of xenophobia uh, or if it's based upon color, uh, then it'll be based upon that. So certain type of privileges that are given to certain people are not given to those particular people, or rather certain privileges are given to one's own people more so before they're given to others. 
So some people will consider that to be a certain type of racism or even a systemic uh, a systemic type of racism. We think about racism in that sense. And that is to say that uh, in the view of these people, they don't consider, um, let's say, uh, an Egyptian who prefers to marry an Egyptian woman, Egyptian man who prefers to marry Egyptian woman and no other woman, they wouldn't consider that to be an example of racism. Uh, if they find other women to be unattractive, uh, they would say, well, no, racism will, uh, it happens when, when people actually, uh, there's actually a system, uh, a system-wide prejudice, which is, it, it locks certain people out of the privileges that it gives to other people simply on the basis of them not being part of the preferred race. So, so that is one way to see race. Uh, the other example of race or definition of race, it um, is less systemic in nature. And, and, and what I mean by that is, um, is what you refer to as like ethnocentrism. Like, so, for instance, an example, mm. uh, like I gave the example of marriage, uh, uh, a person may be attracted to someone who looks more like him or herself. Uh, and they say, well, you know what, I want to marry this particular type of man or this particular type of woman. Uh, and so they may prefer that or you prefer different types of music or different types of food. And you and you find the, the particular appetites of other people to be uh, perhaps um, repulsive at times. Mm. Uh, and you prefer a certain uh, um, type of thing. Your tastes are different. You know, so that that in itself or and, you, and it goes a little bit further and you take pride in, in your own culture and you somewhat look down upon. Uh, the cultures of other people. So that itself um, is not uh, what we necessarily would call racism, according to the those who adopt the first definition. They would call that ethnocentrism, even though they would say that a precondition for racism is ethnocentrism. You know, so you can't really have racism until you first have ethnocentrism. So you have to be very careful even about ethnocentrism. So let me let me try to summarize what I just understood. So it sounds like racism has almost two levels. The first one is when it is embedded in a power structure of a region or society or culture. And the second one is more of a soft racism, or maybe you could even say a psychological, you know, it, it exists in the psychology of the people, um, even if it maybe isn't, doesn't exist in the uh, outer environment. So for instance, you might have in like, let's say a country where the predominant uh, population are dark, um, but they see themselves as superior to the northerners who, let's say, are fair-skinned. Um, that could be both part of the power structure of that region or country. In other words, it's it's embedded in the cultural notions and values. And it could also just be something that a person just ascribes to, um, whether that exists in the power structure of their country or not. Is that is that uh, one way of understanding it? Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, that's precisely uh, the difference between the, the, the two. And, uh, and I believe you did a very good job to, um, to summarize uh, what I was trying to articulate there. Um, and I think also I would add that um, it is important that we don't make this mistake of thinking that um, that racism or or even um, what we can call xenophobia uh, or nationalism, even if you, uh, you look you look at it in the obverse uh, fashion, 
that these are things that are specific to only certain types of people, certain colors of people, that even uh, in Africa, in African countries, uh, simply because people uh, have the same black skin doesn't mean that they see one another as a homogenous race, right. that they themselves see one another as uh, brothers uh, to the exclusion of other people who don't look the same way that they do. Uh, if anything, you will find that um, that uh, people who often look the same but don't share the same language and they don't seem to share the same history, they, they don't see themselves as uh, really be belonging to the same race. Uh, um, so, so that's an important thing to, to take into consideration uh, and reminding ourselves that especially during the pre-modern period, um, xenophobia was it was it was universal. It was universal. Mm -hmm. So let me let me just try to wrap my head around this a bit more. So let's say, you know, my wife is from Africa, okay, and she is identifies a, as the black race. But the two of us, we actually despise you know other cultures except for. Turkish culture. That's like our culture. We want to follow Turkish culture and eat Turkish food and have Turkish, you know, arts in our home. Does that make us ethnocentric yet not racist? Because if I'm not black and she's black, but we're married and we, we don't see a problem with that, but we both really are obsessed with a specific culture and even use that as a means to prop ourselves above others. Could you still be, you know, um, kind of not indirectly racist, so to speak, but still ethnocentric? I think I think the the operative word in your particular uh, description was the word despise when you despise others' cultures. I think there's a difference between taking pride in your own culture, your own history, and despising another people's culture. Now, of course, taking pride in one's one's history that sort of that presumes that you held other people's cultures in somewhat, to some extent, in a certain amount of disdain. Uh, and so uh, that is to say that there's a considered to be a tolerable amount of disdain that one can actually entertain towards other types of culture, other types of people. Uh, and actually, I, I don't believe that you can completely rid uh, the human being of prejudice. We're all prejudiced people. We all have preferences. Uh, we, we again, we have preferences. We have different tastes in different things, and we make choices. We say, "Will you give me a choice between this type of person, or this type of person, or this type of woman, or that type of woman, this type of food, or that type of food?" I'm going to choose one particular food over the other. You know, so I like that, but you know, I like this better, right? But when it moves to the level of disdain, where uh, one uh, is, is, I guess you would say, in an unhealthy amount of of dislike. And and maybe you're saying if that disdain or or contempt or that negative emotion is used or weaponized in any way, then that's when we're talking about a serious transgression here. Exactly. Like yeah, when we start to think that because uh, I don't like a thing that I don't think it should exist or I don't want it in my presence, then that definitely is um, uh, is setting us up for creating the type of a system of oppression. Uh, and tyrannical system, which will uh, lead to what we call a racist society. 
I I mean, so would Muslims be considered a race or is Islam a race? I mean, can you be racist to some Muslims but not to others? Or based on this kind of uh, definition you gave us, I mean, most Muslims today uh, are of different ethnicities. And um, is it possible to even see Islam or Muslims as a race? Right. Well, again, it all depends on your cultural milieu. And um, the thing that's interesting about Muslim cultures is that that um, our identities in Muslim society generally, their religious identity is is really um, oftentimes given a lot of importance, even though for many Muslims, a whole lot of Muslims from the Muslim world, that Islam uh, is a more of a culture than it is a religion. You know, but cultural identity uh, has it plays a major part in self-definition in Muslim in the Muslim societies. And so and so issues of color become secondary or ideas about race are secondary. So if we if we think of Muslim societies uh, uh, conceptions of race, then and we say that okay that that um, my race is say if I'm part of a Muslim race and so uh, my my religion is Islam, uh, my language is Arabic uh, and then thirdly, I say, okay, I'm fair skin or light skin. I'm dark skin, right? These are things of third ter- ter- tertiary importance, for instance. Uh, then you can say, okay, yeah, that's technically a certain way of seeing race, uh, or that's the way that Muslims may see race in Muslim countries largely. Uh, and but you put them in a different context where religion is not as important, um, culture is not as important, but color is primary of primary importance, like in America, for instance then, yeah, um, you can definitely say that a Muslim could be um, looked upon as a race uh, in the sense of how one is treated, or let's say uh, because of the way that the locals or like the Americans may perceive of what a Muslim actually is. So for instance, because a Muslim in the American context is not uh, a generic term. Uh, It's not just a, a religious term. It is actually a racialized term. You know, because in America, the people who typically will become, will act, what we call Islamophobic against Muslims. Uh, these are people generally who uh, see Islam, first and foremost, as a, 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 an alien element or, uh, uh, to the American context. It doesn't belong in America. It doesn't, it's not part of who we are, right? Uh, and the people who are Muslims are people from that part of the world, and those people from that part of the world generally li- generally look like this. That, this is xenophobia, then. Uh, this this is basically the broad definition of xenophobia: the fear and distrust of that which is perceived to be foreign or strange or other. Yes, right, exactly. And that ca- and that can, of course, almost be a launching pad for actual racism and prejudice and discrimination. Simply, simply because humans are also wired, you know, on some level to fear what is uh, unknown or unfamiliar to them, right? Yeah, I, th- I think that, yeah, that. But I think a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm actually implying something, suggesting a little something a little bit more than that. You know, because a Muslim can't make a claim that they are any race because Muslims are of many races. Uh, uh, but, but the the very fact that that the in the minds of the people who typically will attack Muslims or people who look like Muslims, right? Um, that in itself suggests that they presume that Muslims have a certain look, right? And the very fact that they they attack on the basis of looks lets you know that Muslim in the minds of the attacker is a certain type of race of person, right? 
So, um, so even if Muslims themselves have not been able to articulate that, you know, and, and even if the races may not look exactly the same, but we know we say, okay, they, they can be brown, they can be black, dark skin, sometimes they're even olive skin, right? Types of, uh, um, um, they have all those looks because that is the makeup of the majority of the Muslims throughout the world. You know, whereas they may see Christianity as a white religion, for instance. You know, Christians are Europeans, a, a majority the way that they would see it. And Christianity is part of who we are as, as Americans, as um, Samuel Huntington would put it, uh, that we are, who are we? You know, that we are Anglo-Protestants, right? And so, so, and that is the view of many of the white supremacists. Right, right. So, I mean, you can have a... Caucasian white Muslim, and there could still be xenophobia uh, towards that individual, but maybe not necessarily racism, because I might just see you as just another Irish guy, you know, that I grew up with in Boston, but you you also happen to be Muslim and wear a kufi when you walk around. Um, and and that that seems like it almost throws people off. It's like confusing. Um, I I remember once I had like a, a Ramadan iftar uh, in San Francisco when I used to live there, and uh, I had you know all kinds of, of friends come from from different faiths and backgrounds. And and one of my friends, it was so interesting. You know, someone who grew up in the United States and and the West Coast. She was like. I thought all Muslims were, you know, brown. Like, I didn't, because there were actually Muslims there that were born and raised as Caucasian Muslims, right? Their parents were, were Muslim and, and they were born Muslim. And, and that was just really, I almost witnessed this, like, cognitive adjustment process going on when she was like, wow, like, there's there's Muslims that look very white and, and look very American, and they're still praying and, and saying, "Salam uh, alaikum and all these things. And... um it's it's interesting that that uh, people get thrown off by just experiencing you know the the diversity of, of the faith. And do you think this may have something to do with why perhaps con- converts of certain ethnicities and uh, races um, seem to be sometimes more celebrated or appreciated uh, over others? Uh, do you think that has something to do with perhaps the collective insecurity that that some Muslim communities uh, carry? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that that's a good way to characterize it as collective insecurity. Um, and I would say that the way that we typically would classify or describe this is as uh, is an inferior an inferiority complex born of the uh, <clears throat> imbibement of white supremacy, what we call. Uh, and and this is something that Muslims uh, are dealing with today. Uh, and the world is dealing with it today, and that we have taken uh, in or digested the the notions or the presumptions of the superiority of European civilization, the superiority of uh, white skin, uh, and it's and it's pretty evident. So, for instance, you think about uh, in a country like India that spends. Uh, over three hundred uh, million dollars a year on skin whitening cream. Wow, uh, which outsells Coca Cola. They wow. outsell Coca Cola in India, or even in Black Africa, like Nigeria. In Nigeria, up to or more than seventy percent of the women in Nigeria utilize skin whitening cream. Uh, so, so, so there definitely is uh, an issue, uh, um, a, 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 an issue of inferiority or a sort of a type of valuation, uh, uh, a greater greater valuation given to uh, white skin, and especially if they are of European type, uh, than those who are 
um, or not. You know, so those are celebrated because it's like literally looked upon as being the pride because Muslims see themselves as inferior to the European. So we celebrate them, you know. But if there's someone else who we don't consider to be superior to ourselves, it's not it's something to say, alhamdulillah, that's, that's pretty cool news. But uh, it's not something really to be celebrated in the same fashion. Right. Now, you could, okay, so I could definitely hear some of my... Um friends who who have gone through experiences of racism because of their background or skin tone they might go okay fine but let's rewind here you know let's let's not say that the reason why all these constructs of race exist today especially in the west is because of the enlightenment and the renaissance and you know the manifest destiny and and europe coming to kind of civilize the world and all of these uh motives of of colonization as you would learn in, in most history classes and certainly if you read anything by edward said but what about when you look at islamic tradition itself i mean some african americans or or people of of darker skin might feel a little out of place when they learn things like you know the maidens of paradise are um, described as being very fair or or almost to the point of transparency or the prophet muhammad's complexion um, or this idea of things being light and the white as pure and good and virtuous whereas things being dark or blackened as a way of of uh being derogatory or evil i mean it's isn't that a difficult thing for some people to get over psychologically and what advice would you have for muslims that may feel um out of place because of those kind of ideas or definitions right yeah i think that um it, it definitely is, is a challenge for uh a lot of people especially people who are of the pan-africanist type who don't like those type of metaphors what we call the metaphors in the in the quran or in the language these are linguistic metaphors and for one, one thing I would say to them is that one has to understand that in practically every single uh, language on the planet, um, and even um, amongst the, the African languages, that every language uh, has bifurcation uh, uh, between black and white uh, in terms of goodness and, 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 and evil, good and evil. Uh, and so the very fact that dark Africans themselves uh, typically don't see um, this this metaphor as one to really uh, something offensive to their identity or their selfness and their selfhood uh, should be reason en- enough for us to say, well, um, okay, um, perhaps there's something we're missing. Perhaps there's something we're missing here, especially when we take into consideration that the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu and the Quran make it clear that the, that God uh, judges people or values people on the basis of their righteousness. Uh, and that was one of the things that was the most revolutionary aspect of the prophet's mission, is that he took the Arabs from, he revolutionized their identities, that they were prior to Islam, the Arabs placed a lot of pride in who their fathers were, who their lineages, their pedigree, it really meant much and defined who they were. Yeah, and but the Prophet he came and said, "No, that what is most important about your identity is your religion. It is your faith. It is your um, your piety, right? That that is the most important thing about what you are, and this is what unites you." And so he revolutionized identity, Arab identity, uh, and and every Muslim who came, who person who came became Muslim, they placed that at the forefront, right? So. 
So, so it, it is not something that Africans, think of African Muslims, dark African Muslims, sub-Saharan Muslims, uh, the many people who actually have, have, have accepted Islam over the centuries, that they themselves, they've been aware of this particular metaphor by black and white, and it hasn't discouraged them from becoming Muslim. Um, and um, uh, even though there, there are some things that come up in our tradition, which um, issue from the mouths of certain scholars in different ages, sometimes is in the form of, of, of racial, racialized types of, of offenses, and sometimes it's some misogynistic type of things. Uh, but the or, uh, Islamic orthodoxy has been very good at maintaining the image of, of this, um, uh, I guess you would say, a moral, uh, um, moral meritocracy, I guess you would say. Uh, that that uh, that 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 image has has permeated or has been most predominant throughout um, Islamic history, uh, and um, and it's really only people who themselves who don't appreciate the creativity uh, of language um, uh, that actually take the greatest ire at these type of um, these type of suggestions or these type of metaphors. You know, you know what's interesting too. Like, I'm going to add some Kareem nerdy footnotes here. I mean. That's, of course, a real experience for some people, right? That they feel almost alienated by some of the terms or metaphors that are being used. But then I just kind of, you know, I'm an analyst. So I try to think to myself, okay, I mean, let's think about it, though. I mean, the reality is human beings prefer things with with light, right? Nobody wants to live in in a pure, dark room. I mean, one of the things that's, you know, a nice place uh, or home to live in is like, oh, we get great light here or, um, you know, these expressions. Um, And and second, I even think the term black, you know, to describe a race is is not even accurate half the time. I mean, really, we're talking about brown here. And I know even the ancient Egyptians, who some would call black today, um, they they were some of the first uh, civilizations to consider uh, racial categories, and they considered themselves red, for example. You know, so there's a lot of relativity there. And then on the other hand, like you said, I think the the metaphors are there to teach us something bigger and beyond. So it's like saying, if I'm a lefty, do I automatically feel like I'm cursed because? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Islam also talks about, you know, the right represents the good and the left doesn't, you know, but but that doesn't mean you, we have to be obsessive now and never take left turns when we drive or, you know, if I, if I happen to be a lefty, does that mean, you know, my food isn't blessed or my, my, my provision isn't blessed? I mean, we also have to ask ourselves how far we're going with some of these um, literal constructs. And, and as you said, recognize that language, part of its beauty is it has layers of, of meaning and connection. And lastly, I mean, the darker you are, I mean, scientifically speaking, actually, you're actually more equipped genetically to take in more nur from the sun, right? <laughs> so when you think about some of these other things, there, you know, when you start to see the, the you know, when we, we see other angles of it, uh, in a way, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed dark people with being able to absorb more nur and sun than anyone else. So it's just kind of a, my nerdy footnote there. You know, people have asked me before, and I've also counseled people through situations like this, you know, what would be your Islamic advice uh, to individuals that want to marry outside of their race or ethnicity and are met with hostility and weaponized guilt from parents or family, um, especially when it's cases where there are no 
quote-unquote Islamic reasons not to marry the person other than they are different from us? I mean, is that just straight up xenophobia and racism right there? Or would you say, hey, in some cases, it is just about existential practicality. I mean, some families just want us, you know, want to stick with people that know our customs and our clothing and they can cook our recipes and your mother-in-law can speak to your your, her daughter-in-law. I mean, do you think sometimes it is just innocent needs for existential practicality or even those situations need to be um, addressed? Yeah, yeah, I think that um, I, I, I think both. Uh, I, I, I'm I, there's a tendency of, of a number of people I know, imam, certain times scholars, to just simply completely condemn um, the fathers of, of girls who refuse to marry their daughters to men of, for instance, other races, quote unquote. Um, and they say, okay, well, this it just totally un-Islamic. Uh, is completely the person is a sign that the person is racist, and the per, a, a sign the person is not a person not being racist is that if they do marry their daughter or if they marry someone of the of a of a, of a race which is held in disdain by others, uh, which I would argue that is not a an iron iron ironclad proof that someone's no longer racist for them to marry someone out outside of their race because oftentimes the uh, because you're talking about a um, relationship of utility to begin with, uh, and um, or at least it starts that way, it may develop into something different. Uh, but and and the, you really don't uh, you, you know know whether or not a person continues to entertain racist thoughts until you actually have your argument in a marriage. So, so those sort of ideas, those thoughts started to come out then, they manifest themselves. Uh, but I would say that when it comes to guardians or fathers who refuse to marry their daughters to men of different races, that I think the first point, uh, first, first amount of advice that I would give to those children who are thinking about marrying outside of their race is one to expect resistance. That that's one thing they need to expect, and if they expect resistance, then they can be better prepared to deal with the resistance when it comes because. Uh, because, uh, as you stated, um, a lot of times the resistance is just simply a result of the lack of familiar- familiarity. It's, it's xenophobia, as you stated. You stated where, okay, listen, it's like, well, okay, I have all of these. There are a lot of people I know from my own culture, from my own race, who are interested in marrying you. And it's much easier for me and simpler for me to just simply hand you over to one of them. I understand them. I understand how they think. I understand the history. We share a history. Uh, and I know I can sense if someone is going to really is, going, is thinking about hurting you or not. Where this other individual is new to me, is unfamiliar to me, is foreign to me. I really don't know if I'm reading them correctly. Uh, there's a lot of complications involved here. Uh, there may be issues of shame or or, or dishonor related to uh, the, uh, the, the actual marriage that the person is afraid to deal with. Uh, and it takes time for people to be, to actually, to, to transcend those type of fears. It takes time to do that. Uh, and, and, and a case in point, I remember having recently having, having a conversation with a young, uh, Pakistani, uh, um, um, young man, young Pakistani man, who's interested in marrying his sisters who's, uh, whose family's from Afghanistan. And um, once he approached the father, the father just outright just said, no, it's not happening. And when he was asked, like, why, 
his his response was, well, I don't consider Pakistanis to be real Muslims. So so you find that uh, oftentimes these conversations happen uh, uh, related to African-Americans or blacks and Arabs and and Pakistani um, um, arrangements. Uh, but it also happens uh, in other um, 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 other cultures as well. Sometimes it can happen right in India, for instance. Indian Muslims as well, they live under caste system, right? And if uh, an untouchable comes to seek the, the, the seek the hand in marriage from one who is not an untouchable, I mean, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to deal with. You know, if your culture, if that's your culture, you see. And I just think that, so that's the first bit of advice I give to them is I expect resistance. Secondly, I'll say um, you should think about the consequences uh, of uh, that type of uh, that type of decision to go against the wishes of your parents. Uh, and then thirdly, if you feel, feel that this is what you really want to do, is that you have to be 100% certain that this is uh, worth it. That it is worth it, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's almost like you know, some, a tip I always give people is I say, listen, in the end of the day, you have to make sure the reasons to get married are sound, and the reasons that your you know family is against it is understood, right? And you have to really weigh the variables here. And as you said, bottom line is there's going to be some discomfort. And suffering, whether you decide to marry the person that you want and your family's not on board, or you know, you end up doing something else. Either path is gonna be a difficult one with discomfort. But what about this idea of, you know, if we if people, you know, I you know, almost like social or cultural martyrs, if you will, sometimes people need to step up and break these cycles and these chains, or else if we just give in, and I've met people too that say, you know what, I really was in love with this sister. Um, she's a wonderful Muslima and everything, but she's you know not my culture or not my ethnicity, and my parents refuse it, and I don't want to deal with the battle. So they just they just basically give up, and then they enable and perpetuate some of these notions, especially ones that aren't rooted in you know sound. Um, uh, advice, right? Because I don't hear too many cases where the family is like, you know, um, uh, we, we really want to do this for cultural practicality, and it's going to be easier for everybody. Usually, it's just met with, you know, disdain, and there's not even, they don't even want to have a conversation about it, right? Because it's just so offensive that we would even be discussing that you would marry someone who's not our kind, so to speak. So on the one hand, there's opportunities to break these cycles, uh, and no, and not enable, especially unhealthy versions of of these cycles. Um, but but as you're saying, sir, that it's not going to be an easy thing. And I, I think we all know that any type of socio political, cultural, spiritual transformation or changes, you are going to be met with struggle and mujahida, whether you like it or not. That's just how it's going to go. No, no, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. I have so many different examples I can mention along these lines. And but but you know, just to for for the sake of time. Um, uh, I, I think that I totally agree that we need um, people who are actually going to be cultural martyrs. Uh, but um, we also um, um, have to be careful, too, that we don't become too romantic uh, about this issue or romanticize it a bit too much. Because um, on, on one hand, yes, there are some people who are able to somewhat overcome some of the taboos related to this. And so they go and they deal with the, the struggles that come with um being ostracized from one's family, among other things, for some time, and eventually they may 
uh, reconcile later on in life. Uh, but also there's there's the opposite. I know of a case where an individual who was a Pakistani, he was pushing to marry a um, a Syrian sister, and the the Syrian um, the sister uh, her father would just he just wasn't going for it, and and the brother he just really pushed and tried hard and hard and hard, and humbled eventually the father caved in, and so they got married, and then about four years later they got divorced. Uh, I've seen that a couple different occasions. It happened a couple different occasions like that, uh, and. Um, and sometimes I think that we <clears throat> will romanticize the, the love story and, and don't realize all the tension and friction that's actually going to continue and, and the weight we have to carry over the years. And sometimes it's just not sustainable. Is that what you're, 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 you're presenting here? Yeah, yes, I'm saying. And, and advice and advice I would give for the young men who actually are pursuing these, these young ladies is that you better make sure that she is 100% on board, that, that she, she, she's going to be the one who's going to have to do most of the work of convincing that. Like, like defending, and, and defending him or, 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 or speaking with her family. That's right. That's right. You know, so if she's willing to do that, then by all means, wait and be patient. Try to, you know, to convince dad that you're the one for her. Uh, but she has to do most of the fighting. But if she's not willing to do that, then I would say just yeah. leave it alone. So, so we also have to use hikmah. And sometimes, as you're saying, when we're young, we may romanticize things or, you know, we have this kind of, you know, Islam is so beautiful and it, we transcend racism and all these things. And of course, there's a lot of wonderful teachings, but the, the practical processes sometimes don't always look that pretty. And we have to we have to acknowledge that and remember that if, if we do pursue uh, a similar courtship. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Now, I wanted to also ask you, I mean, just briefly, in Islamic history and civilization from your research and expertise, um, was race and, and ethnocentrism or supremacy of Arabs over others and so on and so forth, were these were these issues that were discussed and documented in our literature? And were there examples where that wasn't necessarily the case? And we have really um, true pluralistic uh, societies or examples where that that um, true Islamic teaching manifested, you know, besides the the Medini period, which I think is is often used um, as as the uh, example of of, of uh, great community. Uh, but what other examples do you could you maybe share for us? I I, I think I would even characterize the the Medini community um, as not necessarily. Um, representing an ideal community which would turn with relationship to, to race to race relations either uh, but I do believe that the Muslim community uh, throughout its history is perhaps the community which has uh, done the best uh, when it comes to race, race relations for most of its history especially until the Enlightenment period and then the 20th century as well that it seems that uh, things have changed or are changing more and more. Um, when you reflect upon things like that are happening in, in Iraq, where there are reports of black Iraqis uh, being discriminated against, in uh, um, Tunisia, where you have certain areas of the country where they actually have somewhat of a, an apartheid system where people are discouraging the black Tunisian from uh, marrying uh, or the white Tunisian uh, from marrying the black Tunisian or the darker-skinned Tunisians. Uh, you find situations like that, issues in, in Egypt as well, in other parts of the Muslim world. You have problems that have developed uh, uh, nowadays. 
But um, uh, um, the, the one of the reasons I, I believe that Muslims historically have been more successful than um, than other um, civilizations is because of what we spoke about earlier today, that Islamic identity emph- emphasized the importance of the religion prior to before anything else. And for that very reason, the whole concept of race uh, or or th- there's not really a word in the Arabic language, that, at least that I know, that corresponds to the way that we conceive of and perceive of race today, because uh, we think of we think of race as biological homogeneity, uh, in the sense that um, that there are different uh, types of people, and each group of people uh, has its origins in a certain part of the world uh, from a certain, uh, each, each group of people has its own Adam and Eve, you know, so we call polygenetic type of theory. That's the way that most people sort of interact with one another, even though in Islam, there's emphasis that have been placed on the uh, monogenetic origin of, of human beings that we believe in, uh, all, uh, that all, the, all human beings originate from Adam and Eve, one mother and father. So all of us connected. And then, so naturally, there have been mutations throughout history uh, in terms of you know color and phenotype and other things, uh, um, which um, you know they're evolutionists. And they speak about the causes of that, but um, but there's not really a word that uh, accurately describes uh, race, you know. And so the closest thing we get to it is nasab, which is really a word for lineage or blood tie. So and and, that, and the nesib itself was determined by um, your 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 father, right? So you fathered your father your father's lineage, uh, but that in itself uh, really blurred the lines or obscured the mother's lineage, you know. But it, so it doesn't really accurately show um, or prove um, uh, racial purity. Uh, for an example, Amr ibn Az, an was known uh, for his conquest of Egypt. But what many people don't know about Amr ibn al who is taken and accepted as a legitimate Arab, uh, if anything, a, an elite Arab, what many people don't know, know about him is that his mother was Ethiopian. Really? I didn't know right. that. Yes. Right. His mother was Ethiopian. Um, his brother, Okba ibn, ibn Nafir, um, actually opened up the rest of North Africa, that he actually established the foundation of the city of Kairouan in Tunisia uh, and the the other areas that we had eventually um, 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 were referred to by the Muslims as Afriqiya uh, in Northern Africa. And Uqba ibn Nafiq was the, the half-brother of Amr ibn Az, and they shared the same mother. So his mother as well was was an African woman, was Ethiopian. <laughs> so, but no one would ever question their Arab legitimacy because the Arabness that they possessed was determined by their father, right? By who their father was. So, so we don't have in the Arabic language, at least from traditional, you can we have more, of course, words today that more modern standard words, but from Arabic, classical Arabic, you don't have words that would accurately describe or uh, articulate the uh, the same or connote the same sort of meaning or understanding we have of race today. So that, I say that that's one of the one of the first reasons. But but with regard to actual discrimination or 
what we would look or view as racism happening or the idea of Arab supremacy being emphasized throughout Muslim history, uh, that you do find um, this, 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 this phenomenon. It does exist in our, uh, in our tradition, where you find a number of scholars who actually would um, argue that, that you had an obligation to believe in Arab superiority. Well, Fadl al-Arab, Fadl of the Arab, that the, the, um, the virtue of the Arabs have to be acknowledged over others, and certain scholars even consider that to be um, the position of Ahl-Sunnah, the uh, position of the Muslim orthodoxy. So like scholars like Ibn Taymiyyah, for instance, he argued for um, the Fadl of the Arab, the Arab superiority, but he wasn't the only one. You know, there are a number of Persian scholars who even would argue that um, it was an aspect of re this religious teaching to acknowledge a certain fadl for the Arabs. Now, when you hear this, people will say, well, okay, well, how can that be when the Prophet ﷺ made it clear that there's no fadl or no superiority of Arab over non-Arab unless it be through taqwa, through um, God consciousness? Uh, and because it becomes difficult to reconcile this. How, would scholars, how can scholars make the claim like that? Uh, and I would say that the, 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 the way that they could reconcile this is that the fadl that they speak of or the, the merits or the virtue that they speak of is not a moral or spiritual merit. Whereas the hadith of the prophet and the verse in the Quran is talking about moral superiority is talking about spiritual uh, superiority where Allah says you know there's only taqwa that determines that uh, but the Arabs definitely have had a social social cultural um, advantage I guess you would say over other groups of people historically you know so for instance the very fact that the Quran is revealed in the Arabic language is something that no one can deny that Allah, he chose the Arabs for the Quran to be revealed in their language. Right. And so naturally, um, you're going to have Arabic culture uh, imbued in the religion. I mean, I always tell people if, if the Prophet Muhammad was Japanese, you might have, you're, we're going to have uh, Japanese uh, script and, and um, characters on our walls to, to talk about Allah's names, right? Or, or we may even have a different term for that. So in the end of the day, it had to be some ethnicity, right? Because some people might even say, well, you know, why did he have to be Arab? You know, the last messenger to all humankind. Like, but I mean, he had to come from somewhere. So, so you're saying that even, um, even other ethnicities He's talking about acknowledging the merit of the Arabs um, more as a uh, almost like a would you say like it's an anthropological um, facet, not necessarily a moral or spiritual one? Because to my knowledge, and, and maybe you can you can clarify, didn't the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam also uh, talk about merits of other ethnicities like Ahl al-Rum or Ahl al-Furs or, or the Egyptians? And can you tell us more about that? It, well, indeed he did. He, he definitely talked about the different merits that they had. Uh, and um, and I think that what makes this much more uh, of a challenge for people living in our time is, again, we imagine race as a biological, as meaning biological homogeneity, because one can legitimately ask the question, um, how does one become an Arab? And during the pre-modern period, um, you can ask the question, uh, how does anyone become anything? Right, realistically, right? Because um, in those times, people weren't simply, they, they weren't defined on the basis of this idea of biological homogeneity. 
that you can, it was easy to become an Arab. So most of the Arabs today are Arabized people, right? Outside of people outside of the, outside of Arabia are Arabized people for the most part. You know, um, 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 most of the Arabs in the world today are Arabized people. How did they become Arabs? They became Arabs because they adopted the language and they adopted the culture of the Arabs. Right. And doesn't Arabic actually ha mean uh, to articulate clearly? That's what it means, Yarib or Arab. Can you tell us more about the semantics of the term itself? Right, exactly. Arab or definitely means to to articulate uh, uh, um, oneself clearly. Um, that the Arab um, is sometimes, it is used in contradistinction to the Ajam. And the Ajam is the word for non-Arab, uh, and especially for a Persian, uh, because and 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 the root of ajam is 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 one who is mu'jam, one one who who does not have the ability to clearly speak or articulate him or herself, right? So, so 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 as but but I'm saying is that it wasn't only for the Arabs Arabs uh, who actually determine their group identity uh, on the basis of language and culture, but it's everybody generally did so. Like so, people. It wasn't about what color you were, you know. That it, you know, what are Arabs? What do they look like? Oh, they look like this. No, it's not about what they look like. It's about you know what they do. Do they understand one another? Do they speak the same language? Do they share the same practices, the same customs? That that is the way uh, they um, one became an Arab, and and so it became easy for almost anyone to become an Arab in those in those days. That today it, it, people don't think of things that way. You think, okay, well, how can you be, be an Arab when you, you know, your father going back this many generations um, uh, wasn't an Arab? You know, you can only be an Arab if you, you can prove going back a certain number of generations. And most Arabs probably can't even prove that themselves. But but that's the idea that people have that that's that that that's the proof that you know you have to look a certain way. But in, that, in those days, um, and actually our lexicographers and historians teach us that. The majority of the Arabs actually were brown people. They were light and dark brown people. Ibn Manzur and the Lisan al-Arab, he mentions this. Imam al-Nawi mentions this. And Shahram Sahih Muslim, Ibn Athir, he mentions this about uh, uh, the same thing about the Arabs. Almost everybody is in agreement. Uh, Thalab, the grammarian, uh, um, so many different um, people have mentioned and stated this fact that the majority of the Arabs were brown and black or light or dark brown people. So, so, but we, when we think of Arab, the sort of the stereotypical Arab today is this, the Palestinian, the light-skinned Palestinian. But you know, when you when you think about uh, this uh, this particular claim or uh, that has been made about the Arabs, you know, it gives you a different impression of what Arabs look like. And so, and I only say this to, to, to emphasize the point of trying to make, which is that during pre-modern period, um, people or race was cultural. It wasn't biological, right? And so, so when people when you hear about the Arabs are superior to non-Arabs, just get well, okay. All that did fundamentally was made non-Arabs want to become Arabs, <laughs> and it was easy for them to become Arab. You can't become a white person today. If, um, you can't just, so you know I'm white. He can't just become white. It doesn't work like that. You see, but well, some some people would argue though, sir, that you know there is this idea of you know white culture. And if I'm black or, or Asian or whatever, and I take on white culture, like full on, you know, the way I talk, what are my interests, my values? I mean, there are people that have been um, 
labeled as such like why are you acting white or you're not white or you're never going to be white you know you're trying too hard to be white so there's that aspect uh of of uh culture um kind of connected to even race to some extent with some people but but before you address that i also kind of wanted to to point out as a, a second um, challenge so some people that become muslim and they take an arabic course and they learn that the meaning of ajam is you know those who can't articulate clearly um simply because they're not arab which means culturally they are they are lacking a quality because of their culture or their tongue i mean what would you say to that is that discrimination for example? well i mean again Again, I mean, not being an Arab doesn't make you inferior. I mean, and this is this is the uh, the difference. I think the, the subtle uh, distinction to be made uh, between scholars preaching the fadl of the Arabs uh, over the way that we understand it today. You know, because you hear about you read this and you say, "Oh my God!" You know, here you go, Arab supremacy. Uh, and um, but these these scholars were not talking about uh, the fadl in the sense of innate or natural superiority, you know, at least not most of those of the medieval, the medieval period. Maybe uh, maybe scholars that you become closer to the Enlightenment period, like uh, scholars like um, uh, Yusuf ibn Mar'i al-Karami, uh, the humbly scholar from Syria, perhaps, yeah. When you read his his book, Fadl al-Arab al-Ajam wa Fadl al-Ilmi al-Nasab, uh, um, then yeah, you, you, you can easily get the impression that he's arguing that Arabs are naturally superior to um, to non-Arabs, uh, but um, I, I would say that you know, of course, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala judges you uh, on the, on your words and the judges you on the basis of your your deeds. As a hadith says that Allah in Allah la ila suwarikum that Allah doesn't look at your physical forms, but I can ila khulubikum wa amalikum. And in one He looks at your your hearts and your deeds, and in one narration He looks at your hearts. Um, so, so, so this, this is what we have to remind people of. This is what Allah subhanahu wa taala judges us by, and that's what that that's when it really means something, you know. Right, and that's the crux of the matter. Is we have to go back and go, okay, with all these constructs of race and politics, and maybe my own trauma. Um, what what does the teachings really say? And and like you said, this verse from the Quran almost kind of dispels a lot of confusion. It, it just says, "Hey, listen, human beings, forget about the outside. You know, in the end of the day, it comes down to your internal reality, and that's what Allah only Allah Subhanahu wa Taala knows that. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, I think another point to, that's worth mentioning here is we also have to remember as Muslims that Arabic is not the only language Allah communicated to humankind uh, right. through. There, you know, we do have documentation of, you know, what, 124,000 prophets, another narration, 224,000 prophets. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran that we sent every nation and tribe uh, a warner. Uh, another verse in the Quran alludes to, you know, there are many prophets who we've not shared their stories and, and uh, some we have shared them and some we haven't. So there is this kind of open-ended um, aspect to it, which which I think is part of the universal beauty uh, of the Islamic teaching that if we forget about, it, com- it becomes very easy for us to now be stuck in these tunnels and compartmentalizing, you know, uh, certain aspects or statements of the religion. And, and now we fixate on it and we forget about how that is just a pixel 
uh, from this much bigger uh, picture that we have to take as a whole, right? This is very important, but nowadays, uh, you know, uh, sure, nobody can practice any religion perfectly inside and out in every aspect, but sometimes I feel like, you know, the ego and, and, and politics and cultures have agendas, and so we always love to kind of pick and choose what parts of the religion we want to highlight either for or against us. Right, right, right. But and and I would say as well that um, as a word of caution too is that while on one hand we want people to understand that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has chose different groups of people uh, throughout history uh, for His message and for His revelation, uh, but at the same time we don't want to send the message to Muslims that the goal or the aim of Islam is for to create an egalitarian existence. You understand? Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does choose some people over others. He prefers some people over the others you know, uh, at times. That he, if some people become rich, some people are poor, some people get, get knowledge, some people don't, get, don't, have, don't have the knowledge. It's like um, the hadith with the, the companions, they come to the Prophet, and they're complaining that all the rich people, they've, um, they, they, you know, they, they're walk, going away with all of these all these greater blessings and we, we can't catch up to them and their blessings. You know, they pray like we pray, they fast like we fast and they, but they also give charity with the extra wealth that Allah has given mm. to them. <laughs> and in one narration, the, the Prophet responds to them, says, that's the fadl of Allah. That is the surplus. That is the, the advantage or the merits that Allah gives to some who gives to whoever he pleases. He, that he gives mulk, that he gives his dominion and kingdom and rule to whoever he pleases, right? That he, he raises up, he brings down. That's, that's just Allah's sunnah right. in this creation. Some people, you know, he gives some people authority over others, you see? And everyone is going to be tested in what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to them. You know, so I think that it's a mistaken error for us to attempt to send the message that, uh, yeah, uh, though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that he revealed the Quran in the Arabic language and he chose the Arabs for the uh, his final revelation, uh, that, uh, you know, that, yeah, you know, we should also look at this, but, but as if to say that, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu that his message was just simply the same as others, or there is no sort of distinction to, to that to him, to him himself, or to uh, his people, at least during that time, because he even said himself, that the best of generations are, are, are is my generation, and then those will follow them, and those will follow them. So even generally to the generations themselves, in terms of their piety, their knowledge, their commitment to the religion, that there is a sense of, of, um, a reinforcement of uh, even uh, a type of hierarchy, the social hierarchy, the political hierarchy, the spiritual hierarchies that do exist. You know, and, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, that he, he's not going to give it to everyone. Everyone is not going to be on top. Right, right. You see? But some people, like, you, you know, they do, uh, you know, take that almost like personally. Like, oh, how could God have a bias? And that's one of the arguments you hear atheists use is like, you know, God picks and chooses, you know, children of Israel, the Arabs, or this particular part of the world. You know, how, what kind of a God would do something like that if God is truly the most just and wise? And I know that, you know, you, you just said that, listen, this is part of the sunnah of God. There are There's a way of which he uh, creates and distributes. And, you know, in the end of the day, you're, you're a creature of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you can't control or have everything be the way you like it. On, on a level of biology, it's like the human being, I mean, uh, uh, Allah could have made us, made you into a cow. 
right? He could have made you into a cow or made you into a, a roach, right? But he made you to a person. So, I mean, can you make the same argument? Can you say, well, okay, well, if, if this is a just God, why would he make the human being, give the human being these this potential that he didn't give to a cow, right? Right, so you can you can take that in so many different directions, you know. But again, it's part of it's God's sunnah and his creation, right? You know, but it's just that we ourselves have to understand that um, greater authority is not to be interpreted as um, um, superiority or innate or natural superiority. Rather, we should see it as um, superior responsibility. Greater responsibility comes with greater blessings, you know, uh, and, and that's the way we have to see it. You see, so uh, men are the caretakers of women. You know, we can see it as okay that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, oh, we're better than women. Otherwise, Allah wouldn't have made it make us the caretakers. No, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave you greater responsibility because you have certain gifts that He did not give to her. <laughs> right. right. Or paradise is at the feet of the mothers. So does that mean mothers are superior to fathers right. and are not right. as important? Right. So so like you're saying, people can just take what they want. And it, it always comes down, as I say, down to intention and interpretive That's efforts. Right. Right? right. Because you like you said, anybody can take anything and just stretch it and wrap it the way they want. So this is part of ikhlas is to really try to find the truth and ask God for guidance to give us wisdom rather than just picking out all these things that maybe don't fit into our you know our, our intellect or our reasoning and i think i think that's a good highlight right like you said you know even the you and me we have temperaments and preferences like maybe i love italian food even though i've tried different foods but this is the one i really love and prefer above all else does that automatically make me against my own culture or, or people or others because i i'd rather eat you know pizza than than this right i mean w w when we really start to unpack it um, you know, sometimes it, it seems almost like, um, I wouldn't, I want to say it could almost even be immature, uh, in, in, in fixation. Um, so on that point of Allah's sunnah and that he of course gives to whom he wants what he wants and withholds and, and, and raises people and lowers people and chooses people and so on and so forth, right? This is all part of the existential theater, as you said. It's part of Allah's sunnah. Now, if, if we just do a simple mental experiment and think about how every, every person, every ethnicity, every culture has complete equal distribution in, you know, weather, atmosphere, provision, minerals, you know, gold, vegetation, you know, down to the person's intellect, stature, body, this and that, what kind of a world would we have? And would that kind of defeat the whole purpose of why humans are on this planet serve uh, to live out this particular journey of the dunya in the first place? So do you think that part of the, um, the meaning here for having variety of distribution and in, in infinite possibilities of how things manifest and, and, and uh, are in the world without having that type of simulation, where would we have opportunities to grow and transform? If everyone has the same amount of money, there would be no point of charity or sadaqah or generosity, right? If there was no, um, if everyone had the same intellect and intelligence, there would be no point of, you know, people seeking knowledge and teaching and, and guiding others and helping others and, and so on and so forth. So almost like this idea of, you know, the argument of, um, 
whether it's against religion or, or God or, or race, that everything has to be perfect. I mean, that means khalas. We're already in Jannah and there's nothing to be, there's no more tension, no drives for creativity, no innovation. Everyone's just chilling, you know, and enjoying what they're enjoying and, and that's it, right? So, I mean, is that is that an accurate position to have that, that even the Quran says, you know, this is, it's set up this way. Otherwise, you would have no simulation to actually live out the path that is designed by uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and what re- all religions have been talking about. Yeah, I think that's exactly the message uh, that the Quran is, is, is conveying, it conveys to us precisely what you just said. That's what I believe myself. Akramakum Allah. So to kind of wrap this up, uh, sir, and um, and thank you so much for for your uh, responses. It's been it's been awesome, and I hope this is just the beginning of more uh, shows to come. But if you'd like to, you know, maybe you could leave us with some. What general advice would you give, you know, uh, the Muslim community? Uh, or even American community at large. I mean, we're both here in the United States, and we know that race issues exist uh, outside of our own community. But you know, what what general advice would you give people uh, to improve um, or, or help heal this this social disease of racism, whether it's in our own communities or outside? How do we be more sensitive or aware, or 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 what action items could we take uh, for those that really want to make a difference? Yeah. Well, I think first and foremost, it's important for us to uh, learn the history uh, of our societies. Um, let's say if we're speaking about America in particular, that it's important for us to understand that one, our self-definitions are not um, truly self-definitions, that we, we have been influenced from the outside and the way that we see ourselves uh, collectively and as, as individuals are influenced by the power structures under which we live. Uh, and in America in particular, um, we um, have been indoctrinated into racial difference uh, over a number of centuries. Uh, and we live with many of the stereotypes and the assumptions that are related to uh, those theories or the pseudoscience that it developed during the Enlightenment period. So even though today, uh, in order to become an American, you don't have to choose to be either black or white, for instance, um, that we still live uh, as, as Americans with a lot of the um, pre, pre, presuppositions that had, um, had um, been uh, spread during that early period. So the first thing is about learning about that history and understanding how we become uh, what we are or we see ourselves as today. Secondly, I would say for Muslims and even for Christians and Jews, because this is a story that all of us share, it is important for us to reconnect with our origin story, as I would call it. And the origin story related to uh, who our mother and father are and that all of us share a, a, a single origin uh, in Adam salam and the Prophet وسلم, on numerous occasions he tried to reinforce this to his companions that Adam Adam that all of you are from Adam and Allah created Adam from dirt. And and in doing so, that in itself should not be seen as an attempt to erase uh the um lines of difference uh between uh human beings. Um that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also tells us that he is that Allah He is the one who made us into peoples and into tribes. It is it is uh as part of the divine uh plan for us to 
see ourselves as separate at the same time. But lita'arafu, in order for us to come back to recognize one another and to know one another as well. Uh, but we, 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 we share this origin, and I think it's important for us to, uh, to highlight this, to, to reintroduce this to the, um, to the public, the non-Muslim public as well, that this is a story that we share, and we need to get back to this on a certain level and understanding uh, what has been done in order to break us up. Uh, so that, that's the second thing. Thirdly, I think that we have to try our best to encourage dialogue. We have to create spaces where we can have conversations about the anxieties, the fears, and the fears of the different members of different groups that do exist in society uh, who are vying with one another for power. Uh, so that we have to create a space where people don't feel judged uh, and they will not be punished for being honest about how they feel. You know, for instance, I tell people this all the time, that um, if I'm sitting in a room with a white person and the white person tells me that, well, uh, when I'm in a black neighborhood, I feel, feel afraid. Or if I'm walking down the street and I see some black guy standing there, standing there I get afraid. You know, I shouldn't, that, per, that person should not be punished for being honest. I shouldn't like say all of a sudden that's a sign of their, them being racist. I don't think necessarily that's a sign of them being racist. It's just that they have a, a certain experience and certain things have influenced their view of me and people like me. And, and I think that this is one of the things that drives a lot of the violence against blacks in American society today, the very fact that we don't talk about these issues, that, you know, we can have a protest. But what does the protest ever do? How many uh, police officers actually have been convicted for killing black people? Even police officer who actually shot the man in his back he was, as he was running away. This, this, this police officer was, um, was, not, um, was not convicted of, of committing a crime, committing murder. Uh, so, and, I, and again, and, and we, the, these juries that they chose, uh, for some reason, they found a reason to, to, um, to um, set him free, to let him go. Uh, and I would say it's because of people have been programmed uh, about certain types of groups of people against one another. And those at the top, they utilize these biases that, that have, been, um, have been placed uh, in us uh, to their own, to do the advantage of the rich, I guess you would say. And this is Pharaoh, too. Pharaoh in the Quran, that, you know, in the, in the Fir'auna, ala Fir'audi, that that Pharaoh he he exceeded bounds in the earth and he stratified the people into different groups and he uh, oppressed a faction among them right so this is the the pharaonic pharaonic order that that is what he does you see but you know so it's dividing conquer uh, so but once we come to realize what has happened to us then I think it's easier for us to to deal with one another. You know, so for instance, what's happening right now in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, well, it's, it's very bad, you know, that, you know, what's happening there. And in one sense, you could say, well, um, this is just racist. They should want to get rid of the statue uh, uh, because of the negative connotations. They should want to get rid of the Confederate flag because it's offensive to black people and, and, and the history there. But um, um, will we actually sit down with the white supremacists and ask them, 
what are your fears? What are your anxieties? Why is it that you won't, don't want to get rid of the Confederate flag? Why don't you want to get rid of this statue? Um, and we may come to, come to find out that there's some more meaning to them than just simply their desire to want to champion slavery or their desire to want to keep black people uh, oppressed, for instance. And maybe they want, they feel like it's a history that they value uh, that and there's aspects of that that history that we can learn ourselves. You see, you know, but that won't happen if we feel that the the best approach is to simply shut down dialogue or to not to have a conversation. And, and again, I'm not trying to defend anything that these these guys have done, but I'm just saying that the way forward it has to be a, 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 it has to be about dialogue, not about just simply protest and then shutting down conversation. So again, coming back. I would say the first thing we need to understand our history and how we have developed our ideas about one another. Second of all, um, uh, we need to return and and to highlight uh, our origin story. And thirdly, we have to promote dialogue. Those are the three uh, points of advice I think that we can give to I would give to the Muslim public and to the public in general. Um, and um, hopefully there'll be some benefit from that. No, that's great advice. And it's interesting because, you know, like you said, most of us will just go, you know, neo-Nazis, Ku Klux, you know, just shut it down. There's, they don't even deserve a minute of our time kind of thing. But you're saying that even if we have some some dialogue and some understanding, right, that maybe we may help dispel some of the fears and anxieties which which prompts them to hold on to such views or organizations in the first place. Maybe there's a way where they can still feel like they're honoring their own heritage or origin story, so to speak, right? Without doing things that are harmful and dysfunctional and, and violent, right? There's, you're, you're saying, there, why, why should we close that opportunity? Because, you know, that, that we always want to find uh, peaceful means uh, before anything else. And sometimes because of our trauma or our negative associations with groups, we don't even conceive that they may actually get softened in their heart or recognize, you know, that the, once the fears or anxieties are, are removed, that perhaps um, th these organizations or visions can even go through their own evolution and it won't be, uh, you know, to the, to the detrimental uh, outcomes as it is now. So, so that's a very interesting uh, way of putting it because I think a lot of people might not even um, consider such, such a possibility or approach. But subhanAllah, in the end of the day, knowledge is, um, you know, knowledge and, and connection with our fellow humans, regardless of, of what's on the outside or even our political, religious, philosophical affiliations. That is the, the, the human technology that helps bridge the gaps, that helps us uh, understand, and we may even learn new things about ourselves and what we assume to be true uh, as well. Dr. Abdullah, thank you so much for your time today, and uh, I I hope you'll you'll be coming back uh, on the show, inshallah, and we can continue uh, with with more conversations. I hope this is a means for for us to have dialogue with with different um, guests and on different topics. So please uh, keep us in your du'a. Don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, lamppostproductions.com. Um, wonderful website with with great resources and courses, and um, I encourage everyone to check that out. Dr. Abdullah, thank you so much for, for, for coming on today. Alhamdulillah. My pleasure. You take care.